This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Tatum. And Tatum and her partner were bullied by a narcissistic church elder. It's a story of extreme love bombing, gossip as a form of concern, the fog, minimization, and smear campaigns. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, I have Tatum. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me here. Well, thank you for being here. And for those of you that want to be a guest on our show like Tatum is today, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, there's all these instructions. Either fill out our guest form or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse.gmail.com. And today we are going to be talking to Tatum about her experience with her church and the leadership of the church and it ran itself like a cult-like environment or at least the leaders there there did and it was an interesting relationship for you and for your husband how you got there and uh, everything that kind of transpired uh, within it that had you eventually uh, have this relationship destroyed, and uh, it's an interesting story that I think a lot of people who are in uh, families will have uh, a lot to uh, resonate with, and even if you're in a relationship, this episode uh, will have a lot of things for you to resonate with, because the tactics that are kind of being used here are, are, are pretty much the same you see throughout the, the different types of abuses and, and different types of family relationship and here organizations. So uh, I just really want to thank you for being here with me today. And now, the f- oops, and now <laughs> I said your real name there. Oh my gosh. And now Tatum, the floor is now yours. Wow. Thanks, Brandon. So really, one of the things that you said about how this might be helpful, I always think about our story as unique in that whenever you hear like emotional abuse or narcissistic abuse stories, um, often it has to do with families or maybe one person interaction with the abuser. In our case, it was me and my husband that joined the church and became very close with one of the leaders at the church, uh, feeling like uh, we were friends. Uh, We opened ourselves up. And after a while, um, which takes a while, (laughs) things started looking a little weird. So tell us about who you are and I guess who your husband is a little bit to understand 
your belief systems and why certain manipulation tactics might have worked on you uh, when when going to this specific church because you were a part of other churches before this one, correct? Right, right. Yeah, so we actually one thing about us that um, kind of makes us different. First of all, we are we come from different cultural backgrounds. So both of us grew up and spent our formative years in different countries outside of the U.S. And then we came to the U.S. Um, to study. And uh, then we ended up getting married and staying in the U.S. And so uh, because my husband had a calling for ministry, he felt like um, going and working with uh, religious organizations. Um, well, initially it was a nonprofit organization, but eventually um, a church was something that it was a great place for him. That's where he thrived. He enjoys and still he enjoyed and still enjoys working with people. And he has uh, strong convictions as to his calling. And so do I. And so that kind of brought us together. Um, and I think one thing that really makes it difficult for us being in the United States is that we uh, not only are immigrants, we also don't have much of a family support here. So we don't have our relatives. We are kind of first generation only people um, here in the U.S. Uh, most of our relatives are either all over the world or <laughs> across the ocean. So we don't get to see them and talk to them as often. And um, for many people, that's where they where they find their main support system. For us, that support system became a church, local church community. And so we had been part of a number of churches before, as a couple, before we came to this church. And for the most part, our experience was quite positive. Churches took care of us. We brought our gifts to the church. It felt like a big potluck party. <laughs> so to me, you know, being a part of a good, healthy church community was like finding your own home. Um, so I actually really didn't doubt that a church can be a place where some people might be you know, power hungry and slightly manipulative and really manipulative <laughs> over time. Um, I did not see that happening because I hadn't had that experience. And even if we had had experience with some individuals that had not really lived up to their calling, um, that was a, a lot more obvious than when we found ourselves in a situation with a narcissist where nothing is clear, where on the surface, the person is just positions himself 
um, as one personality. And over time, you discover very gradually, you discover that it's not exactly what you thought it was. And I think the fact that both my husband and I became sort of victims to that kind of a relationship shows to you that it is really so confusing. It can fool anybody. <laughs> and I mean, we both have two master's degrees if it tells you anything, but I, I had never thought that I would find myself in a situation where I would be so confused. Like, is this person a friend? Is he really a friend? If he's a friend, why he's behaving like this? Why is his wife this way or different way? Like I always kind of looked at maybe, well, let's look at his surroundings. What are people around him telling me about him? Because these people had been around him for a while. And now I know that they had enabled him for a while. Their reality was just as skewed as ours. So we couldn't use it as a reference point to when we began asking questions. Okay, why is this person behaving like this? So eventually you move churches and you go to this new church. What prompted that move to begin with? And then uh, when you got to the new church, what was your initial feeling when meeting everyone? So um, we, the, before my husband um, became pastor at this church, uh, he had been a consultant and he had worked with a number of churches and parachurch organizations that had leadership issues. <laughs> Surprising. He would go to like different churches that were either going through a transition, maybe organizations that found themselves in a really um, difficult situation communication wise, and they needed a mediator. He would come in and he would help them navigate and set up certain structures to for for more transparent leadership. So at this particular church, he had been consulting the church for uh, some time prior to becoming the pastor. And actually, he was not initially, that was not the plan, but he had um, worked with um, one of the, um, well, the pastor at the time and prior to that more, uh, of the staff and he noticed and he had heard the name of this person uh, mentioned multiple times and generally in really um, in this really sketchy context of here's the person that is power hungry here's the person who is conflict prone here's the person who is just so um awful with certain people and so we had heard that it was kind of uh, in our radar but being hopeful and also um so well maybe naive in some ways we felt like 
wow, that's not going to happen to us. We are not going to have that conflict. And so when we, when my husband uh, came to this church initially, he came because the previous pastor was leaving and he was leaving and prior to his departure, he had had issues with that particular um, abuser and they just, just yelled at each other and just was like a really big scandal. Um, not scandal, but like a, a big fight. <laughs> and so they left and my husband was kind of uh, in the interim position, what they call a church interim preacher or transitional pastor. And so when we first joined the church, we felt like, what were all these people talking about? You know, this community is so loving and welcoming. We were just, I, I don't know, we felt like we finally found a home. People just were so hospitable. They opened up their homes and particularly this person who had been, uh, we had heard so much about, so much negativity about, all of a sudden he welcomes us and he starts telling us things that we were just really smitten by his kindness and generosity and and love and that you know together with our naivete where we thought oh we it's not going to happen to us and now oh this person is actually so good I guess those people had issues with him because they had their own issues but of course we're a lot better than that (laughs) so it's not going to happen to us um and we were just smitten by how uh, welcoming people were. And a lot of them were. I'm just, I'm saying that's not just this particular couple. There were a lot of people that were very open. They told us how they were excited for us to join this church. And uh, my husband's gifts and giftedness uh, was so welcomed there and And so when the time came for them to hire someone permanently, they had a choice. They either wanted to hire someone from the outside um, or they would hire him. And to me at the time, it was quite clear that it was really a good place for him uh, because he would engage with people and the community there really needed a pastor that not only preached on Sundays, but was really a good people person, which is what my husband is and actually it's not so common for pastors to be like really outgoing people persons <laughs> most of the time it's about your speaking skills and um your teaching skills so that was much appreciated so before you continue i just want to point out right here right off the bat that you you come into this place you hear things you're a little bit weary you meet everyone everyone is wonderful you that overrides what you had previously heard and then they feed into a little bit here of your ego of being very good at what you do respecting what you do and then they hire your husband so you're you feel like you're being respected appreciated and that you are 
valued members of the community very early on and seen as competent people that can help. Right. And another thing, too, for us, we were not really seeking that position. My husband was not seeking that position. He was just following his calling. And he found himself in a place where he began thriving. And I could tell that he was so um, at the right place. Um, And there was a lot of confirmation in the community itself, inside the church. And particularly from the leadership, the leadership that one person questioned, right? We had thought, oh, this person is really bad news. But he turns out to be charming and wonderful and generous. I mean, not just generous, I would say super generous and really flattering. Like he would say thanks to my husband. You are the best thing that ever happened to this trip. At the same time, um, we would hear a lot of dirt being thrown around at other people and previous preachers and other people that we knew had not been on good terms with him. And of course, then we began hearing all this dirt you know, on other people and sharing that gossip and thinking, well, we're better than that because he thinks. And prior to that, everybody would tell us, oh, this is Dan's church, implying that he runs the matters here. And so, and then we have a a slightly different experience because we don't have any altercations with him when we join. He's absolutely generous and and loving and and kind and appreciative of the work that we do, telling us you're the best thing that ever happened to this church. His wife is just as generous. And I think, wow, like I had never experienced that. This is so wonderful. I mean, they would invite us to their home. They would throw parties just for us. Um, They would organize baby showers for uh, the kid, for my kids, you know? So it was just like, wow, I, I haven't been in this church for a long time. And all of a sudden these people are organizing a baby shower Uh, They are making sure my kids are taken care of. They buy tires for our car, you know, because the wife had this dream, prophetic dream that we needed tires. And she wakes up and she feels like, I'm going to just give you the money to buy tires. And it was funny because that's what we needed. So it was really bizarre, some of the things that were happening. But to us, it was almost like a sign of these people really follow God. They really have this divine gift of generosity and love. And I have no idea why other people had issues with them. Probably it was their issues, but not these wonderful people. So this is a big love bomb right off the start. 
and there's also seeing a future together yeah. in a way, yeah. you know, a shared future, even though this yes. isn't a relationship story, there's a shared future amongst yeah. this where you're a team possibly, right. just like it was any regular relationship and you're looking forward to this future and it's something that I don't know if it will eventually be dangled, but it's something that can eventually be taken away. And just like we hear in relationships, your beginning here is almost identical to what most people uh, deal with. Yeah, it's right. It's if somebody were to tell me today, like, if it's too good to be true, it probably isn't. I would tell them, well, but you don't understand these people are true followers of Christ. They really, really know what the Bible teaches them. They want to follow it, you know, and they're so sincere. There is no question about it. Um, but one thing that we did see from the beginning that made it all kind of sweet with a tiny, tiny bit of bitterness in all of the sweetness was the gossip that was planted and the connection that was being built that felt like we were a part of a sort of mafia clan. clan. And what I mean by that is when you become a part of mafia clan, you become loyal to the people in the clan, in the clique, in our leadership circle, right? And you treat everybody else that challenges this leadership as potential enemies. And I'm able to say that now with a lot of therapy and looking back and reconsidering certain things. But when at the very beginning you are meeting a person that is just almost too good to be true, and if this person opens up a relationship by started by starting to pile dirt on other people that you know to form alliances to also form animosity and breed animosity towards other people and we're talking about church here right but that was the case when this is happening then we need to stop and think, okay, why is this going on? Do I want to be close to this person or do I want to step away and set boundaries? And for us, now I realize that the friendship was really, the core of friendship was built on, you know, their generosity, they are giving. We cannot reciprocate that level of giving. Um, it was also built on discussing others slash gossiping which they labeled as well we're discussing our leadership issues <laughs> so there's always another story nobody ever comes to you like let's gossip about these people come on we're a church we don't do that kind of stuff um no it was uh, turned into a narrative about well we care about those people so we need to talk about them now the tone of this conversations and 
the jokes that were made at the expense of these people, that was what really was, you know, at the center of it. And because we couldn't reciprocate to their gener- their generosity, they were giving their, their well-off, um, we reciprocated with our own vulnerability. So we became vulnerable. We pretty much, because we felt like, it felt like friendship, sort of, except we knew nothing about them. They knew almost everything about us. They knew my family dynamics. They knew my husband's family dynamics. They knew um, our financial situation, our coming to the United States, how our lives had been prior to joining this church, what we liked, what we didn't like, what our aspirations were. They, uh, they sort of recorded all these things, and then they started using those weaknesses to provide us what we needed. And what we needed was community. What we needed was surrogate family, which they were happy to kind of adopt us in a way. And what we needed was the things that your family usually does for you. You know, if you, if you have sort of a, I mean, a nice family, your family might say, Oh, you know, your, your child has a birthday. Here's a gift for them, you know, and you have a birthday. Here's a gift for you. Here's a gift card to a place you really enjoy and all other things. And it just felt so good that you never, never thought about the, the bad stuff, the bitterness. You kind of, you kind of looked over it. So at this point, you are seeing red flags. I guess there's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance in the sense yeah. of uh, what I should trust and, and what I am seeing and experiencing that is making me feel good. And then you're a Christian, and this is not a Christian way of being. So you're kind of caught in this dilemma here, but the good is outweighing the bad, I assume, or the bad has not gotten bad enough yet. No, no, no. And then too, you always look around, you know, like, which is so common, like something is happening and you feel like, man, this is really weird. Like, does everybody else find this weird? And you look around at the people that surround you at this party or anywhere. Hey, you know, that joke was kind of a little sketchy. You know, why are we all laughing? And everybody's laughing or everybody's rolling their eyes and saying, well, that's just Dan. That was the story that kept repeating itself. Oh, don't, don't worry about it. It's just Dan. Was a couple questions. First, in a situation like that, where you're, saying, hey, that might be inappropriate, do you then start to think at the same time, well, maybe that's what their gossip is. Maybe what I'm doing right there is the same as their gossip, and that is confusing, uh, possibly, because you're talking then about someone else, and uh, it's just a really, um, I guess, circular kind of thing, if that makes sense. I have no idea if what I said just made sense. But then as well, uh, when 
you're discussing things with your husband about what is going on. What is going on between you and your husband at this time? And what are the feelings you're expressing to each other? Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, initially, really, um, the cognitive dissonance was always there. The thing is, you had a story that solved this cognitive dissonance. So we're sitting, for example, we're talking about someone at church that was probably going through some difficult times, but instead of, you know, just leaving it alone, we just go on and on and on about how could this person have gotten themselves into this and all that stuff. And so that's a cognitive dissonance. Like, who are we to, to judge somebody else and why this person is in, a, in such a situation? Um, did we show up to help them? And sometimes they did, actually. We all did. But we would then go help. And after that, it's like, oh, I can't believe this person is blah, 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 blah. So, but the cognitive dissonance was resolved by me telling myself, well, we're leaders and we are discussing the issues. And the issues are so bad that we're discussing as bad as they are. And it's so, to me, now when I look back, I just, I cannot believe that it never occurred to me that, you know, leaders don't do this stuff (laughs) to begin with, right? We just don't go down that road. We just say, um, the person has had issues. This is how we're helping. And we're not going to sit there and judge them for making the choices that they make, you know? And this was not our place. This was gossip disguised as concern. Right, 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 right. Thank you. That's uh, that's a really good thing. And then, um, in terms of my husband and I and how we're discussing this. So, again, Dan is the narcissist. He is surrounded by a group of people that. I now understand are his uh, flying monkeys or they are his uh, cronies. These are people that really believe that he's a, a wonderful person with some issues, but everybody has issues, right? Um, and that's how it was all positions, just a different kind of narrative. And it's very difficult to contextualize it and to hold people accountable to this narrative at church because when you say okay wait a minute what are we doing here then this person shouldn't be saying this thing and then they say well you're saying this stuff as well like you are part of it so immediately you're being gaslighted or you when you start saying something about well why does he why is he this why is he so aggressive well it's because of his job he has a corporate job he's tired you know and i once had this thought about well that kind of doesn't make sense i mean we all are tired for the most part you know we are going through a lot um but at the time i didn't go down those questions like i was afraid to ask these questions, to be really honest with myself, like, why do we have these double standards? And because you're constantly gaslighted to say, okay, why is this person behaving this way? And then the response would come, well, we all have flaws, right? Are you suggesting that you are better than him? You know, 
And so, or are you not willing to forgive this person? Or are you not willing to, um, you know, accept him the way he is? All of this is good Christian needs talk. And when you, when you had never had experience with that, you feel like, well, yeah, what, what right do I have to say something against it, right? Because I also have flaws. And it makes me understand these days why churches are a perfect breeding ground for abuse. And I'm not even talking about physical and sexual abuse. I'm talking about emotional abuse. I'm talking about people laughing at other people or people, you know, making jokes at other people's expense, what I mean, and people gossiping behind people's back or people say, oh, rolling their eyes. I can't believe this person is doing this or that. Because if you end up saying something against that, there's like, well, who are you? Like, are you a saint here? We're all sinners. Don't forget that. And that was the stuff that was really hard to understand and process without adequate tools that I would later, my husband and I would later get through therapy. But initially, it was like, yeah, I mean, how how can I do this? And so because we were so gaslighted, so every time my husband and I would talk about Dan, right, in in our home, we always defended him. I would say I always defended him. So my husband would go into a meeting, and because Dan was one of the elders, he would pretty much just... Um, he would start sort of bullying him in meetings. He would say, oh, what kind of an idea is this? Or my husband comes up with some kind of a process that we can implement to make our church a safer place or a more welcoming place. The response would always, well, we tried that. It didn't work. You know, well, what a dumb or stupid idea. So every single idea that he ever brought to the meeting, not initially, not initially, but you know, after a couple of, maybe after a year at church, he started bringing these ideas and he would say, okay, how about we read a book together, right? And learn to be better leaders. The response would be from Dan first. And of course, all the elders kind of went along with Dan. So there was a, a clear power dynamics where nobody, nobody said anything against what Dan said. So, so let's read a book to be better leaders. And Dan would be like, well, we already read all the books there are to read about leadership. <laughs> so first thing of narcissist, narcissistic personality, I am the best. And there's no, there's nobody better than me. And what are you talking about, about trying to make me better? Like a, a book that will improve me? I have no room for improvement. <laughs> 
did you ever, well, we'll come back to your husband in, in, in your, your conversations with your husband in a second, but did you ever find out more about Dan's background or Dan's history and his wife's background and her history, where they came from, like what their upbringing was like or anything along those lines? Very, very little, very little. I mean, like I said to you, what they knew about us was our intentional sharing with them of our vulnerabilities and our past and some of our experiences. What they shared with us was just kind of in passing. So he came from a family with a really authoritative dad and a kind of passive mom and two more siblings that always fought for dad's attention and allegedly he got less of it. That's all we know. That's all we know. Um, we we'll also know that his, his dad was in this corporate leadership position and he pretty much got his son into this same position after he retired. So, so it was uh, very convenient for him, which explained later why it was so difficult for Dan to uh, be compassionate. Well, he could not experience much compassion as a narcissist, but at that time we did not know. But for example, he always had a judgment card on people that were working hard and were never able to, you know, achieve certain things because, you know, he got it right there. <laughs> and his wife, uh, she came from a really rocky background where um, her parents divorced. And then she grew up, she was raised by her mom and her stepdad. Um, and her younger brother was a drug addict who, who died. And that's all we knew. And it, we only learned it in passing. So there was probably some sort of attraction for her in a male that was sort of dominant and believed himself to be right. There was maybe some sort of trauma bonding. Again, I am looking at it now using the vocabulary that I know from therapy, but one way or the other, they worked very well together. Um, she always submitted to him and that's another big big part of the so-called you know church culture protestant church culture i would say evangelical church culture um where um they spent the majority of their lives being at that church and where a woman sort of submits to her husband and there's a skewed understanding of submission um, and anyway, this whole idea of submitting is taken out of context, which is probably a story for another day. But she felt it was her responsibility to go with whatever her husband said or did. And even though she told us later that she always challenged him, you know, about certain things that he had said in the family, it was always a conflict in their family, like uh, in their family of origin when he went to see his mom and dad and their siblings and they had their family event. 
she always told her husband to keep his mouth shut um, because there was apparently there were fights all the time. Um, and so she prided herself in being the peacemaker, the the kind woman, the person who, how did it happen that I married this man? You know, I am suffering so much. And she, she talked about it all the time. <laughs> like she said, oh, you know, and it was always sort of a joke, but it wasn't. You know, he would say something or could say something crude or say something about somebody and she would roll her eyes like, well, see what I have to put up with. Um, and she kind of, she, she was sort of a martyr. I mean, still is. So, so that's, that's what we saw. That's kind of the background of their family. So going back to your husband and yourself having conversations, what were, what was the dynamic there? How did all that go down? Yeah. So he would come back from meetings like that. Right. And he would say, well, I tried to propose this and that's what Dan said. And everybody kind of agreed with him. And my response was identical to what I had heard from Dan's wife, which is, well, that's just him. You know, he's really passionate about uh, the subject or... Uh, he's really savvy and you need to trust him. He's been around this church for a while. Maybe you can try another idea and so forth. And we kind of, we minimized it. We absolutely minimized it. And we learned this minimization from his wife and his surrounding that were pretty much people that enabled him to be what he was and <laughs> to remain what he was. Um. And also the idea of, well, you need to accept people for what they are, which is so big in, you know, Christianity, so big in churches. And surprisingly, they use it very eloquently, um, accept people the way they are, I mean, towards the people that have been at church for a while and they don't seem to change. And they almost blackmail you with that phrase, well, we need to accept people the way they are. But... How dare somebody walk into a church that may look or, or talk or live differently than you, someone who has been at church for 35 years, has been, and then all of a sudden, you do not accept them the way they are, <laughs> you know? So, so all those rules, they, they didn't apply. They only applied or they only were used in one direction. But if we even go and look at the Bible, I think Jesus had the most beef with religious leaders, and he did not accept them the way they were. He was like, he had some choice words for them. Um, and, and nobody, you know, that's why you know, things went down the way they did. You know, it's the religious leaders that were responsible for most of his um, issues and it wasn't just regular people because he accepted them the way they are. However, people that knew better, they had a much harsher uh, treatment. And it's, it's vice versa at church. And that's what we experience. Like, well, we're leaders. We've been here for a while. You need to accept us the way we are. Now, these new people, oh, wow. 
how can they make such awful mistakes in lives, such choices, such poor choices, and then come to church after that? Did you and your husband fully communicate what was going on or were you afraid to in some ways or like not knowing what to do in this case in the sense of that separation between you and the church or you and the other people in the church did it start affecting a separation between you and your husband during this time i don't think that we were really you know it really affected our relationship um what personally i think we were just equally duped <laughs> we were equally confused um, and we equally didn't really know what the best solution would be, what, uh, how to respond to this. So we kind of minimized and played along. And while we were doing that, some people left church because they had been hurt by Dan. And we knew that. We were part of that. Well not directly, but indirectly. We had heard all the jokes. We had uh, heard um, all the judgment gossip around these people. And then at one, one day, Dan just didn't like what this person did, the way they ate a donut or the, the way they said or, or turned around or, or mentioned something to them. And they just told them something that was really offensive and the person left. And that was, these were the relationships that later when everything went down, right? And we actually were able to, well, we had enough courage to tell Dan what we thought about his ways and behaviors. Um, we were able, my husband actually was able to go and reconcile with the people that have left now they're not coming back and that's probably the greatest heartbreak for us you know being at church and knowing that oh these people were the underdogs they did not have money they did not have power they did not have much of anything they they were just like people with their own quirks that dan did not like and therefore they should not be around Dan and Dan made sure that they were not around Dan and Dan there were another thing I wanted to tell you that that kind of made it difficult for us to talk about Dan in his absence which is kind of it was so weird right I'm here with my husband nobody hears us I can talk to him about like wow this is really weird that he keeps like bullying you in meetings that's just not okay you know and yet we wouldn't do that. And one of the reasons now that I look back is we were indebted to them. We just felt like if we were to say anything, even behind their backs, anything bad and challenging his behavior, it would be immediately going back to, well, but they had done so much for us. They, you know, gave us a car, right? <laughs> they bought us tires. They gave us a car later. They helped us buy a house. You know, that's a big deal. They helped us move. They helped us, you know, paint our entire house. You know, it's, it was so much. 
that at some point, you're just afraid to say anything against them, even in their, especially in their absence. It's like, how dare you not be grateful to these wonderful, generous people? And um, so it was, it was so surreal, but they, they felt, he felt where our weak points were. And so he felt if, if he could just reach out and help us out, then we would be forever indebted and grateful to them. Um, and that's exactly what happened. We were not as um, maybe not as confrontational as the previous pastors that had had issues with him. We also, and some of those issues, like I said, um, the way they were resolved was probably not very wise on both sides. Um, and that's why the way we resolved our issue <laughs> shocked him and his wife. And we'll get to that point. Um, but that kind of fight and antagonism, we were not, we were not as angry and aggressive. And that's why it was easier for them to keep us indebted and grateful and quiet for a long time. Well, right here, it's, I mean, you just explained you're, you're caught in the fog, which yeah. is fear, obligation, and guilt. And you're caught inside this cycle and you have a lot of fears here. You feel obligated to them. Yeah. And then the guilt that must be running inside you of yeah. the cognitive dissonance of what you are experiencing in one way, but the oh like i didn't realize how overwhelming that all of those gifts were i mean that's oh, yes. a, that is a lot so you're caught in this uh, but ah uh, look at yes. you know and like that just that noise in mm. itself that i made was probably mm. a constant in your life every day yeah and and the thing is too because we both my husband and i you know are immigrants, we came to this country to um, get our education and we relied on other people's generosity. And up until that point, the people that we had made friends with, people that had means and were generous and helped us pay for our schools and get us our jobs and all those things, those people had given quite a bit. But it, those relationships were completely different. We were never put into a situation of, oh, wow, I can't even ever say anything negative about that person. And uh, these people were also a big difference was that these people were equally vulnerable with us. It's not like, oh, we're giving you money and all these goodies. And now you have to tell us everything that's going on in your life. So with other people, it's a different relationship. So, so when I talk about generosity of this kind of somebody, you know, donating you a car or something, it wasn't new to us. We had received gifts like that before, but the people that gave us those gifts were completely different and those relationships were different. So now we find ourselves in a situation where we again are recipients of someone's generosity and it's changing us and it prompts us to be generous as well in turn, which the other day I was thinking how uh, we learn generosity even by receiving these gifts, even though these people had 
you know, ulterior motives or the way they were using these gifts later to get our loyalty uh, was not the quote-unquote Christian way of doing that. Um, We're just, just not, there's nothing friendly about that, right? Um, because when, once the gift turns into a tool of manipulation, there's there's no friendship there. So, but but the level of wow, I, I just I can't say anything against this person, and so we we lived with that dissonance quietly. You know, it was kind of unspoken. This unspoken thing between my husband and me. So, how did things? progress or devolve from there yeah and so we um it was 2020 uh a few months before everything shut down uh including churches um and at the beginning of the year i decided my goal was i'm one of those people that writes goal for myself (laughs) so my goal was i want to um, I want to take better care of myself. And I thought, well, what does it look like? And so I thought that uh, I wrote down a few of my thoughts. And one of those was, I wanted to see a therapist. I had never been in therapy. I felt like it was going to help me resolve certain tensions with my kids so I can be a better mom. That was my main, main goal for it. Apart from, I just want to take care of myself, my mental health. And so I started with therapy and um, a few months before um, this pandemic hit. And uh, those sessions helped me uncover some of the things that I had had or had carried from the past, uh, particularly one of the things that was really important that we worked on was called speaking a truth. Um, I grew up in a family where kids do not speak their truth. (laughs) They just are shut down and they are intimidated and you just never say what you really feel about certain things. You just go along with whatever parents tell you, which is what I did. My, my brother, he um, revolted against, you know, my parental control. Uh, but both of us survived in a different way. So I learned to kind of suppress how I felt and how, what I thought. And so we were like trying to untangle it. And, and then we get to the month when uh, we decide to shut down the church because of the regulations by the state. And um, prior to that, we had a, an elders meeting at our home and it was It's quite common to have an elders meeting at our home, uh, but sometimes they would have it in other elders' homes. And so in a meeting, um, my husband is always comes up with an idea that he wants the elders to discuss and give him feedback. And as always, the elders, Dan, uh, starts opposing it. But this time... He gets really agitated and aggressive and he is trying not only to say, oh, well, we've done it before. It's not going to work. He's trying to undermine and to belittle my husband. 
So he starts telling him that, well, you are just craving power and all the decisions that you ever make are your own. You never want us to discuss anything, even though <laughs> they were here in a meeting uh, when my husband was trying to get their opinions on something. And instead of getting an opinion, he gets this whole like offload on, oh, well, this is the kind of person you are, which is ridiculous, which is absolutely ridiculous because I know my husband's not that way. Uh, he is uh, the most generous team player I know like sometimes to his detriment he would be open and say hey can you give me feedback on how I did this and how I did that he's very open to that it's very it takes a mature person to do that and he was just trying to to get my husband to agree to the fact that he my husband is not who he was like Tell me you are power hungry. Tell me you are power hungry. You need to tell me that you are. And and I just happened to be in the kitchen that's connected to the dining room where they were uh, sitting. And they, they bring me, he calls me into the, Dan calls me into the meeting and he explains the situation. Then he asked me a question pertaining to what they were discussing. And if I agree with Dan, then I'm against my husband. And if I agree with my husband, then I'm not answering his question correctly. So it's just like he just put me into this, in this impossible, like weird situation. And, and I was lost. I was confused. Like he was confusing me. And then I bring up another issue that we wanted to talk as we realized, okay, this is not going anywhere. So we switched to another subject. And he, again, started pounding and, and being really ugly. And I'm thinking, if you are my friend, as you thought you were, how can you call or question my husband's integrity? If you really know him, um, how can you question my suggestion to improve what one of the systems that we had at church? And how can you just completely undermine my experience? Because that's what ended up happening. It's like, oh, I can't believe that it's too hard for you to check-in kids, for example, at church, you know, uh, why do we need to buy this special self-check-in, you know, station, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so after they left, my husband and I sat down. And for the first time, I said, what Dan did in this meeting is called bullying. And I do not want to see him in my house ever again. And he agreed with me. He agreed with me. We, 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 just, we just called it by the name. And the reason I was able, I believe that I was able to call it by the name and I had the courage in me to say it, which was the starting point of our healing process and tearing away from them, which we're still in the middle of it. Well, I guess towards the end. But that was super liberating to find the right words to say at the time when you were absolutely like humiliated and, and diminished and, and just thought of something that you were not. So that's, that's where we were. And after that, it was kind of convenient because church is closed. 
for COVID. And then we don't have contact with them for a while. Uh, my husband, you know, was doing online services for several months. And I stayed home and I didn't take the kids anywhere until they could go to school. And that's when I felt like, okay, maybe it's safer. And we were able to go back. But it was really awkward with them at first because we did not yet, both of us by then were in therapy, my husband and, and I were different therapists, but we still could not find the right words to say it in a way that's not aggressive and and angry and throwing you know, insults. Um, and we also then, it was then that we started learning about narcissistic personality. It wasn't just bullying. It was narcissistic. It's, it, we were dealing with a narcissistic personality and we were victims. And at that point, we're survivors of abuse. That's something that we had to learn what it was. And so it was just too much to take. Um, into consideration and process before we went and talked to them. And so they were beginning to feel like, oh, you know, why are we not together? You know, like you, it's not about COVID you, because you have some people over, you know, at your home. And why is it that we're not talking? And eventually my husband sat down with him and he told him um, about his experience. And he said, I just want to ask you, how do you feel about your bullying behavior on the one hand and your belief system on the other? How do you reconcile the two? And he said, well, I just never thought about that. And, and my husband said, well, maybe you can go and think about it. <laughs> and so they still didn't get it. They still didn't understand. We were still processing and a few months later, I sat down with his wife and she asked me, like, did something happen? What happened? And she asked, I don't think she was aware of all the work that had happened. By then, it had been over a year, I think, that we hadn't necessarily, well, close to a year that we hadn't really talked. And... Uh, well, part of it was COVID, so, but uh, part of it was just by choice. And it was really awkward at church, you know, seeing them and just keeping our conversations to a minimum while we're still processing. And so I sat down, I told her uh, at that particular moment when she asked me a question, I had a split second decision to tell her, oh, no, everything's fine. <laughs> or to to be courageous and tell her the way it was. And I was vulnerable and I shared with her, this is how I felt when your husband was at our home. And I said, it was never going to happen again. And I also believe that we participated in, in, in this whole kind of bullying <laughs> structure because I said, bullies are never on their own. So I was really, I was really vulnerable. I, sh I shared with her so much. You know, Brene Brown talks about um, vulnerability hangover. I had it the following day. I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that I shared all this stuff with her, starting with therapy and starting with how I felt and how I went through so much and how I understand that, that bullying is not okay and that, that laughing at other people's expense is not okay and gossiping is not okay. There is absolutely no 
explanation. And, and I think because I don't know what her relationship is with her husband. They were quite secretive. Like I said, we knew very little about their power dynamics inside their marriage. But one thing that I can know, and I saw that they, that she was very reliant on him um, financially. He has a good job. She doesn't actually need to work, but she chooses to work a couple of days a week just to kind of keep her outside of the home. And though she's a smart woman, um, she relies on him for explanations. So if she has an issue, <laughs> she just goes to him and then he tells her a story and she likes that story, you know, that he tells her. And um, so while we were chatting, it seemed like she was one person. And then she said, well, is it okay if I go and share this with my husband? And I just have to like pause here to probably give a little bit of an explanation. Like, why do I not sit down with him? <laughs> Ideally, we all four of us should have been sitting together. Um, but it would still take a few months before we find ourselves in all the four of us, which will result in another vulnerability hangover. But that will end the whole uh, cycle of going back and forth. So just before we get to that, just explain what a vulnerability hangover is. Yeah. So it's when you, somebody asks you a question and you can respond. Well, in my case, you can respond with just facts, like here's what happened and here's how it made me feel. And I'm done. But I felt like she was my friend and she had to know more than went into it. So I went to therapy and how, how it really made me feel and how, how empowered I was. And that's why I was able to call it what it was. And it was bullying and, and uh, bullying's okay. Bullies don't allowed in my home anymore. He's not allowed to be around and I don't want my kids to be around Dan anymore and so forth. Um, and, and you know what? I don't think she was ready for that. I there are people that are ready and, and, and open and able to hold all this stuff that we share with them. That's why they're called friends. And my problem was that in that meeting, I still thought she was my friend. And I thought that it, it's okay to share a little bit more with her. And I kind of like went deep, but I don't know how whether or not she actually appreciated that level of depth depth. And so when I realized that after the, after I talked, like I talked for a while and after, after I was done, she was just, her eyes were just like, what are you talking about? Like, what is it? Are you insane? Are you crazy? Like you go to therapist and you come up with all this stuff and now you're judging my husband and I mean, her eyes were, were like just in dis disbelief. And all of a sudden I realized, oh man, I, I think I, I overshared with her. And so I was too vulnerable. <laughs> and so the next morning I felt it like, oh no, I can't believe I shared all that. Um, but 
she did go back to him. He probably, he probably, you know, gave her a different story and different spin. And he then wanted to talk to my husband again and say, well, it wasn't really bullying and you judged us. Um, We're not really such bad people. You made us look like bad people. And so then it started all the deflecting started happening. Like, well, it wasn't me. It was just because I was too tired or I wasn't feeling well in that meeting or I wanted to be right in that meeting or uh, whatever. Everything other than I can't believe that I behave like that and that does not go with my values and I'm so sorry. That never happened. And even later when he did apologize, it wasn't the apology that you can see as sincere because um, uh, where there's an apology, there is uh, the owning of your stuff. There, there is a, a way that people call the stuff that they had done by its name. But if people use an opportunity of apology to say, well, yeah, I'm sorry, but that's not an apology. That's an acknowledgement because you were caught in the very act. Like there's no way of undoing what you had done and there are witnesses to it. Um, So um, he was just trying to manipulate us to tell him that it wasn't bullying or to say that, well, it wasn't that bad. Um, and we no longer would do that. And I think that was a huge difference. And later, when we had this meeting, all of us together, that was the big theme of, well, don't you remember how much we had done for you? And all of a sudden, all the generosity, all those wonderful gifts, all the goodness, it all came back to bite us. And they were kind of caught in the middle because, especially her, because, you know, she's also in an abusive situation, whether she wants to admit it or not. So she understands she doesn't want to bring up generosity because if she brings up generosity and generous gifts, then she already acknowledges that none of that was sincere. But she cannot not bring them up because that's the only thing that she wants to bring up to force us to go back to the relationship we had before, to force us to go back on what we had said of him as a bully and of them as people that spearhead gossiping a church. Um, And we would just not do it. They would try to like, well, let's just move on. No, we're not. We, we can move on. It's okay. But we're not going to the way things were before. And every time you will see us, you will remember that what happened in that meeting is called bullying. There is no other name for it. And, and what you did, you know, behind closed doors in your home, what you, you invited us over and we talked about everybody behind their backs that's called gossip and they were just appalled that not only did we say how we 
felt, but we also quote unquote judged them. And to this day, the story continues. Oh, you judged us. The pastor judged us. How dare he? After everything we had done for them. And eventually you get to the point where the four of you sit down. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very interesting how it came about because uh, my husband had told them, he said, yes, after all these like micro meetings that weren't going nowhere, he said, we need to sit down all four of us and discuss that. And for some reason, Dan would always say, oh, no, my wife will never agree to that. She does not want to be roped into it. She does not like to, she will not, he just spoke about it. She does not want to be a part of it. This is not like her issue. She was roped into it. She's not a part of it. Um, but in the meantime, um, we have new elders because they decide to, after two years of COVID and them kind of not participating much in the leadership of the church, um, they were suggested a sabbatical, which they all took, um, and the new elders come in and one of them... (laughs) was uh, much younger, but he displayed also in his own way some narcissistic personality traits, which I was like telling my husband, oh, no, you you can't, you've got to be kidding to have another elder. And this elder goes to the, goes to Dan to talk to him about, you know, to serve him, to ask him how Dan is doing. Of course, Dan tells him everything, all the beef he had had with us, how we had judged them, and how unfair we had been to him after all the gifts they had done, which allegedly those gifts were anonymous, not anonymous, but like were personal. Like, why are you bringing, flaunting them? Why are you now telling everybody how much money you gave to to us to buy a house? You know, like how, why, why are you doing this? But of course, now we know why. Mm, because now he wants to pull us back. That's like the strategy of a narcissist. They they can't just leave this bone alone. I need to pull you back. And I'm going to, to do it in different ways. And this was another one called smear campaign, right? Um, so now he needs to destroy your reputation. So this uh, new elder, he's like, oh, I took a class on mediation. Let me mediate this meeting between the four of you. Um, but first, let me have both of you in the meeting, and we'll see how how it goes. So, in that meeting, interestingly, my husband walks into the meeting, and the elder, the new elder, had not even talked to him prior to that. So, the mediator only knows one part of the story. He aligned with that part of the story, and he comes in as a mediator um, to to help resolve this issue. So they sit down, they go back and forth, and and nothing is accomplished except uh, Dan gets really aggressive, and he tells my husband, I'm that close, and he shows, like, I'm, I'm that close with his finger, I'm that close to punching a wife in the face right there in the meeting. <laughs> and the mediator is shocked, but the mediator does not say anything. And my husband, thankfully, who has done had done quite a bit of therapy at that point. He knows that, I mean, obviously he's going to, the 
that narcissist really get really angry and aggressive and they want to get you to respond and retaliate. And that is what my husband knew not to do. So he's sitting there and he says, well, how do you think that makes me feel? Damn. And that was, um, and it wasn't that same meeting that, that Dan is saying, you always wanted to change me, but you never will change me. This leopard is not going to change his spots, you know? And so, so it, it goes nowhere and they decide, well, all four of us need to sit down. So all four of us get together, which was initially Dan's like, there's no way your wife is going to call my wife. I was like, Really? So I called his wife and I brought her in. She was not against it at all. As he had said before, all four of us sit down together. And I have another vulnerability. (laughs) I know. But I needed it. I needed that meeting for myself. I needed that meeting to liberate myself, to finally talk to both of them and to tell them. We thought it was friendship, but what it was based on is gossiping. And... You know, I'm thankful to you for opening my eyes to the fact that this is not okay and I will never be okay with that. And that bullying is not okay and I will never be okay with that. In that meeting, what you did, Dan, was bullying. And you are not going to to erase it unless you're willing to work on it. If it's okay for you, if you feel like it goes with your values or it can coexist with your values as a Christian to bully other people, that's your choice, but I'm not going to be around you as a quote unquote friend anymore for that reason. Neither of us will. And so they get really, you know, pissed off and they feel judged again. They talk about being judged, but they never, ever really listen to us. All they talk about is all that matters is their pain, (laughs) you know? And, um, in that meeting, in that meeting, were you yes. were you called ungrateful at any point or anything like that? No, but but all the goodness was brought up again, right? Like, well, we thought we were friends because remember we helped you with this, and remember we helped you with this, and remember we helped you with this. Well, I don't want his wife was saying, well, I don't want to list it, but you know, all these things we helped you achieve, you know, and and at that time, and I said well, you didn't do it so that we can be, you know, saying yes to everything you do, right? You know, like, and, but, but she just said, like, yes, my husband has this personality, like really rough personality, but that's because of his corporate job and because of his position and because of that. And she says, and I'm not excusing him. And she goes on to excuse him, which is, which is totally, totally skewed. And in that meeting, uh, Dan looks at me and he says, you know what? You know, I, in that particular meeting, I just wanted to be right. And so I'm sorry. And I said, how do I know that you're not going to do this again? And his response, well, I'm no longer an elder. (laughs) And it was like, oh, so the fact that you're an elder actually allows you to do that, like gives you license to keep doing it. Um, But 
immediately the mediator says, oh, that's conditional forgiveness. And gosh, I am just so frustrated with this whole Christianese that we're bringing back and trying to fault you and force you into forgiving, quote unquote, somebody who has absolutely no understanding or ownership of what they had done. And they, they just want you to erase what you had said and never say that again, but they don't claim it for themselves. And so later his wife comes in to say, well, you labeled my husband with that and it will be very difficult for him to, you know, to overcome that label or to, to, you know, deal with the repercussions. And he told me that the same, essentially prompting me to take whatever I said back, but I wouldn't because bullying is bullying. And so since that meeting, there's been another, like there's been a smear campaign. Dan, like I said, he works in a corporate uh, position and some people at church, um, they work for him. And so now he uses his workplace to discuss and badmouth my husband, who's a pastor, still pastor, right? And he uses that to turn people, he has used it to turn his friends sort of against him and to question whether or not they can trust him as a leader. Um, you know, a few a few months after that, the the elder that tried to be the mediator wanted to be hired by the church and he was not hired and he got really pissed off at my husband who he thought was responsible for not hiring him. Um, but it was my husband's decision. And so he left. So we've got one narcissist pure at the church. But along with with him, left um, other people that felt that their loyalty went with that person. Um, and, of course, Dan, with his little group of loyalists, is now trying to still continue that tiny little smear campaign. And I always wonder, you know, at this point, I ask myself, why is he still at church? You know, why is he still at this church? Why would he not go anywhere else? Right? And it's very interesting because we get like gossip that, oh, Dan is thinking about, Dan's wife are thinking about leaving this church. But the reality is they never have. They just, they kind of step away, you know. Uh, maybe they go to other churches for a couple of Sundays, but they still are there. And I think it's this issue of power. Like, I haven't really left. I want you to remember that I'm here. And I still have power over you because I can get all these people in my workplace against you by spreading, telling them stories about you. And so that you will feel humiliated, even if I can't do it myself anymore, which is just sick. Like for someone to do it at church, for someone to do it at church and actually derive some kind of perverse pleasure from it but that's that's who you're dealing with you know that's the kind of person you're dealing with so uh, i guess in in the current state of your life with the church um uh, i guess how is your relationship with the people at the church and did the smear campaign work 
so um our relationship at the church is uh, with the people of the church the ones that are not familiar with this whole mess um is actually good and we've had quite a number of new people that joined the church and that's something that dan told my husband at some point a few months ago he said well all of the decisions you're making you know they will backfire at you which was i don't know a threat or whatever it was but we have new people coming in we have new people stepping into the areas of leadership people that uh, truly want to change things around they want to do uh, what they love doing what they feel called to doing to create a community where people feel safe Uh, but the smear campaign in a way it still continues as kind of interesting because um one of uh the elders who is not going to be an elder after july um because of his term will be over but he spearheaded this campaign about why are all these people leaving and the people that have left they've left because of dan you know <laughs> and uh, because of the stories that dan had told them and so he was like why are all these people leaving and dan had told him all those other stories as well so he decided to invite a an outside consultant to see basically what's wrong with my husband to kind of um, you know ask all the hurt parties or all involved parties what their experience was and then maybe come up with some kind of a solution um and so just a week ago i had to write a little seven page response to the questions that the consultant had sent to me so we will see where it will go um i hope that when it's time for these elders to leave these you know this current elders that whose um term will be over um this will be behind us and as far as the reconciliation of your role in everything uh, how uh do you feel about everything and how are you i guess making amends to yourself and maybe healing with others well one of the you know i stay in therapy and i discuss how i feel you know i'm honest about things that i still want to kind of fix or in my mind i want some kind of a closure which is never going to happen uh, ideally i would want people to say wow thank you so much for telling us we you know now we're changing well um that hasn't happened and it may not happen um so being in that discomfort is really difficult for me a person who likes to fix and change things and um i'm accepting the fact that i am okay with being uncomfortable in that situation uh, in this discomfort um i'm also giving myself a commitment not to be a part of gossip um and not to talk about dan his wife when people come to me when people approach me today it's like oh you know why not hang out with dan anymore um 
it's just very easy for me to say, I don't think it's my place to talk about it. Um, but we're no longer hanging out together. <laughs> and I can't tell you why. Um, you know, and there's this thing where they say, with narcissists, you don't justify, um, what is a jade, right? Justify, argue, defend, or explain. And so that is a really difficult place to be. But again, the discomfort and me being okay with, with that. And also surrounding, making commitment to myself to surround myself with people that really are, well, if I can say on my side, but probably that, that, that really want to grow personally. They want to be involved in ministry. They, they're not like all about, let's discuss other people, right? It's very important. It's become very important for me to ask myself, who do I spend most of my time with? And to invest my time in the people that I truly value. And if I have new people that I want to build relationship with, I'm not going to be like super vulnerable right away. And I am much more clear about my boundaries. I'm much more um, clear uh, about saying that's not okay. And I'm, it's getting easier for me to bring up stuff that um, before I would probably be silent about. And so I think in a way, this experience helped me discover things that I never knew I had, um, but that I had to set in place to be of better service to other people and to myself as well. And if you had any words of wisdom uh, or advice for people going through the same thing or for people in relationships with people like this, or family yeah. uh, issues or family members, what would it be? Yes. Well, one of the things that is really, really important for me is to find your support system. And for us, and I realize that the support system cannot be inside the church. And for people that are in church leadership, that's probably the case. You cannot just go to people, some other people at church and, and discuss it with them because then it creates alliances and you become very much like the abuser themselves. You know, they create alliances and you create your own alliances. So it's best to have your support system, but outside of your church. Maybe some, maybe some other people in the community that are your friends. Therapy is really helpful and discussing these things that you are worried about or that concern you with a therapist is really, really powerful. And people maybe outside of your situation, even out, uh, out of town that you can talk about what's going on that can just listen to you without judgment. That's um, really, really helpful. I think one of the ways that we always feel like, oh, now we need to sort of straighten out these people. We need to explain to them. And if only we could explain to them. And I, I totally get it. Um, but with narcissists, it's, it's a lost battle. And it took me so long to come 
to peace with the fact that I cannot sit down with them. I cannot explain to them how I feel. They will not be able to accept what I feel and, and, and respect that. So in a way it was an awakening experience, but it also showed to me, like, who do you surround yourself with? What kinds of people, what kinds of things do you put in your ears? Like how, how do you, in your brain, like, do you spend most of your time thinking about other people's problems and, and how, and judging them, or are you spending your time thinking of how you can be helpful? So really having a strong support network and not using the same tools that your abusers will use, which is forming alliances and spreading gossip or even trying to find support and help from the people that know your abuser, um, trying to turn them against. It's just not going to help at all. So um, find your support and um, distance yourself from the people and not feel like you're obligated. And that was another thing that was really difficult for me is to say what they did at the time, their generosity, you know, that was their choice. I accepted it. It was my choice because I thought it was sincere. I'm not at any point able to reciprocate that maybe one day I will pay off, <laughs> but to be okay with saying, yes, they did that. And I don't owe them anything because the point of generosity is not to say, oh, well, remember you owe us. No, generosity doesn't work that way. Well, Tatum, I really want to thank you for being a guest on our show today and sharing your story. You did a great job and you're going to help a lot of people. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Thank you. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Tatum is today, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page. There's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page where you can read all of our instructions. Please read all of them. Then either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form actually on that page and press the Submit button. Also, at our website, we have our very own safe social network. So if you need some support, press the support group button at the top of the page. In our support group, we have forum boards for you to post and for people to answer to get validation support you need. We have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday night and every other Thursday afternoon. We have episodes that never made it to air. We have ad-free episodes. And as well, if you just want to support our show... And we can take all the support we can get. If you just want to support our show, just join our support group. And we can't thank you enough for doing so. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing. They can connect you with local resources, and they can find ways for you to heal and move forward. So please do go to DomesticShelters.org to access this free resource today. 
And once again, I just want to thank Tatum for being a guest on our show. And from Tatum and myself, we hope you have a good night.